0: Chapter 12 of La Barre by Jorik Karl Heismanns. Translated by Keen Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Easy to find an excuse for this visit, though it will seem strange to Chantelouve, whom I have neglected for months, said Durtal on his way toward the rue Bagneux. Supposing he is home this evening, and he probably isn't, because surely Hyacinthe will have seen to that. I can tell him that I have learned of his illness through des Hermies, and that I have come to see how he is getting along. He paused on the stoop of the building in which Chantelouve lived. At each side and over the door were these antique lamps with reflectors, surmounted by a sort of cask of sheet iron painted green. There was an old iron balustrade, very wide, and the steps, with wooden sides, were paved with red tile. About this house there was a sepulchral and also clerical odour. Yet there was also something home-like, though a little too imposing, about it, such as is not to be found in the cardboard houses they build nowadays. You could see at a glance that it did not harbour the apartment-house promiscuities, decent respectable couples with kept women for neighbours. The house pleased him, and he considered Hyacinthe the more desirable for her substantial environment. He rang at a first-floor apartment. A maid led him through a long hall into a sitting-room he noticed at a glance that nothing had changed since his last visit it was the same vast high-ceilinged room with windows reaching to heaven there was the huge fireplace on the mantelpiece the same reproduction reduced in bronze of Fremiers jeanne d'arc between the two globe lamps of japanese porcelain he recognized the grand piano the table loaded with albums the divan the chairs in the style of louis the fifteenth with tapestried covers in front of every window there were imitation chinese vases mounted on tripods of imitation ebony and containing sickly palms on the walls were religious pictures without expression and a portrait of chantelouve in his youth three-quarter length his hand resting on a pile of his works an ancient Russian icon in nielloed silver and one of these Christs in carved wood, executed in the seventeenth century by Bogard de Nancy, in an antique frame of gilded wood backed with velvet, were the only things that slightly relieved the banality of the decoration. The rest of the furniture looked like that of a bourgeois household fixed up for Lent, or for a charity dance, or for a visit from the priest. A great fire blazed on the hearth. The room was lighted by a very high lamp with a wide shade of pink lace stinks of the sacristy durtal was saying to himself at the moment the door opened madame chantelouve entered the lines of her figure advantageously displayed by a wrapper of white swan skin, which gave off a fragrance of frangipani she pressed durtal's hand and sat down facing him and he perceived under the wrap her indigo silk stockings in little patent leather boutines with straps across the insteps they talked about the weather She complained of the way the winter hung on, and declared that although the furnace seemed to be working all right, she was always shivering, was always frozen to death. She told him to feel her hands, which indeed were cold. Then she seemed worried about his health. "'You look pale,' she said. "'You might at least say that I am pale,' he replied. She did not answer immediately. Then, "'Yesterday I saw how much you desire me,' she said. "'But why? Why want to go so far?' He made a gesture indicating vague annoyance how funny you are she went on i was rereading one of your books today and i noticed this phrase the only women you can continue to love are those you lose now admit that you were right when you wrote that it all depends i wasn't in love then she shrugged her shoulders well she said i must tell my husband you are here Durtal remained silent wondering what role chantelouve actually played in this triangle chantelouve returned with his wife he was in his dressing gown and had a pen in his mouth he took it out and put it on the table and after assuring durtal that his health was completely restored he complained of overwhelming labours i have had to quit giving dinners and receptions he said i can't even go visiting i am in harness every day at my desk and when durtal asked him the nature of these labours he confessed to a whole series of unsigned volumes on the lives of the saints To be turned out by the gross by a tour firm for exportation yes said his wife laughing and these are sadly neglected saints whose biographies he is preparing and as durtal looked at him inquiringly chantelouve also laughing said it was their persons that were sadly neglected the subjects are chosen for me and it does seem as if the publisher enjoyed making me eulogize frowsiness I have had to describe blessed saints most of whom were deplorably unkempt labre who was so lousy and ill-smelling as to disgust the beasts in the stables saint cunegonde who through humility neglected her body saint opportune who never used water and who washed her bed only with her tears saint sylvia who never removed the grime from her face saint radegonde who never changed her hair shirt and who slept on a cinder pile and how many others around whose heads i must draw a golden halo there are worse than those said durtal read the life of marie alacoque you will see that she to mortify herself licked up with her tongue the dejections of one sick person and sucked an abscess from the toe of another i know but i must admit that i am less touched than revolted by these tales i prefer saint lucius the martyr said madame chantelouve his body was so transparent that he could see through his chest the vileness of his heart his kind of vileness at least we can stand but i must admit that this utter disregard of cleanliness makes me suspicious of the monasteries and renders your beloved middle ages odious to me pardon me my dear said her husband you are greatly mistaken the middle ages were not as you believe an epoch of uncleanliness people frequented the baths assiduously at paris for example where these establishments were numerous the stove-keepers went about the city announcing that the water was hot it is not until the renaissance that uncleanliness becomes rife in france when you think that that delicious reine margot kept her body macerated with perfumes but as grimy as the inside of a stovepipe and that henri quatre plumed himself on having reeking feet and a fine armpit my dear for heaven's sake said madame spare us the details while chantelouve was speaking durtal was watching him he was small and rotund with a bay window which his arms would not have gone around He had rubicund cheeks, long hair very much pomaded, trailing in the back and drawn up in crescents along his temples. He had pink cotton in his ears. He was smooth-shaven and looked like a pious but convivial notary. But his quick, calculating eye belied his jovial and sugary mien. One divined in his look the cool, unscrupulous man of affairs, capable, for all his honeyed ways, of doing one a bad turn he must be aching to throw me into the street said durtal to himself because he certainly knows all about his wife's goings on but if chantelouve wished to be rid of his guest he did not show it with his legs crossed and his hands folded one over the other in the attitude of a priest he appeared to be mightily interested in durtal's work inclining a little listening as if in a theatre he said yes i know the material on the subject I read a book some time ago about Gilles de Ray, which seemed to me well handled. It was by Abbe Bossard. It is the most complete and reliable of the biographies of the Marshal. But, Chantelouve went on, there is one point which I never have been able to understand. I have never been able to explain to myself why the name Bluebeard should have been attached to the Marshal, whose history certainly has no relation to the tale of the good Perro. As a matter of fact, the real Bluebeard was not Gilles de Rey, but probably a Breton king, Comor, a fragment of whose castle, dating from the 6th century, is still standing on the confines of the forest of Carnoy. The legend is simple. The king asked Geroc, Count of Vannes, for the hand of his daughter Trifine. Geroc refused, because he had heard that the king maintained himself in a constant state of widowerhood by cutting his wives' throats. Finally, Saint Gildas promised Geroc to return his daughter to him safe and sound when he should reclaim her, and the union was celebrated. Some months later Trifine learned that Comor did indeed kill his consorts as soon as they became pregnant. She was big with child, so she fled, but her husband pursued her and cut her throat. The weeping father commanded Saint Gildas to keep his promise, and the saint resuscitated Trifine. As you see, this legend comes much nearer than the history of our Bluebeard to the told tale arranged by the ingenious Perrault. Now, why and how the name Bluebeard passed from King Comore to the Marshal de Rey, I cannot tell. You know what pranks oral tradition can play." -"But with your Gilles de Rey you must have to plunge into Satanism right up to the hilt," said Chantelouve after a silence. -"Yes, and it would really be more interesting if these scenes were not so remote." what would have a timely appeal would be a study of the diabolism of the present day no doubt said chantelouve pleasantly for durtal went on looking at him intently unheard of things are going on right now i have heard tell of sacrilegious priests of a certain canon who has revived the sabbats of the middle ages chantelouve did not betray himself by so much as a flicker of the eyelids calmly he uncrossed his legs and looking up at the ceiling he said alas certain scabby weathers succeed in stealing into the fold but they are so rare as hardly to be worth thinking about and he deftly changed the subject by speaking of a book he had just read about the fronde durtal somewhat embarrassed said nothing he understood that chantelouve refused to speak of his relations with canon d'aucre my dear said madame chantelouve addressing her husband you have forgotten to turn up your lamp-wick it is smoking i could smell it from here even through the closed door she was most evidently conveying him a dismissal chantelouve rose and with a vaguely malicious smile excused himself as being obliged to continue his work he shook hands with durtal begged him not to stay away so long in future and gathering up the skirts of his dressing gown he left the room she followed him with her eyes, then rose, in her turn, ran to the door, assured herself with a glance that it was closed, then returned to Durtal, who was leaning against the mantel. Without a word she took his head between her hands, pressed her lips to his mouth, and opened it. He grunted furiously. She looked at him with indolent and filmy eyes, and he saw sparks of silver dart to their surface. He held her in his arms. She was swooning but vigilantly listening. Gently she disengaged herself, sighing, while he, embarrassed, sat down at a little distance from her, clenching and unclenching his hands. They spoke of banal things, she boasting of her maid, who would go through fire for her, he responding only by gestures of approbation and surprise. Then suddenly she passed her hands over her forehead. Ah, she said, I suffer cruelly when I think that he is there working. No, it would cost me too much remorse what i say is foolish but if he were a different man a man who went out more and made conquests it would not be so bad he was irritated by the inconsequentiality of her plaints finally feeling completely safe he came closer to her and said you spoke of remorse but whether we embark or whether we stand on the bank isn't our guilt exactly the same yes i know my confessor talks to me like that only more severely but I think you are both wrong." He could not help laughing, and he said to himself, Remorse is perhaps the condiment which keeps passion from being too unappetizing to the blasé. Then aloud he jestingly, Speaking of confessors, if I were a casuist, it seems to me I would try to invent new sins. I am not a casuist, and yet, having looked about a bit, I believe I have found a new sin. You, she said, laughing in turn, can I commit it? He scrutinized her features. She had the expression of a greedy child. You alone can answer that. Now, I must admit that the sin is not absolutely new, for it fits into the known category of lust. But it has been neglected since pagan days, and was never well defined in any case. Do not keep me in suspense. What is this sin? It isn't easy to explain. Nevertheless, I will try. Lust, I believe, can be classified into ordinary sin, sin against nature, bestiality and let us add demoniality and sacrilege well there is in addition to these what i shall call Pygmalionism, which embraces at the same time cerebral onanism and incest imagine an artist falling in love with his child his creation with an erodiade a judith a helen a jeanne d'arc whom he has either described or painted and evoking her and finally possessing her in dream well this love is worse than normal incest in the latter sin the guilty one commits only a half-offence because his daughter is not born solely of his substance but also of the flesh of another thus logically in incest there is a quasi natural side almost licit because part of another person has entered into the engendering of the corpus delicti while in pygmalianism the father violates the child of his soul of that which alone is purely and really his which alone he can impregnate without the aid of another the offence is then entire and complete now is there not also disdain of nature of the work of god since the subject of the sin is no longer as even in bestiality a palpable and living creature but an unreal being created by a projection of the desecrated talent a being almost celestial since by genius by artistry it often becomes immortal let us go further if you wish suppose that an artist depicts a saint and becomes enamoured of her thus we have complications of crime against nature and of sacrilege an enormity which perhaps is exquisite he was taken aback by the word she had used she rose opened the door and called her husband dear she said durtal has discovered a new sin surely not said chantelouve his figure framed in the doorway the book of sins is an edition ne varietur new sins cannot be invented but old ones may be kept from falling into oblivion well what is this sin of his durtal explained the theory but it is simply a refined expression of succubacy the consort is not one's work become animate but a succubus which by night takes that form Admit, at any rate, that this cerebral hermaphrodism, self-fecundation, is a distinguished vice at least, being the privilege of the artist, a vice reserved for the elect, inaccessible to the mob. If you like exclusive obscenity, (laughs) laughed Chantelouve, but I must get back to the lives of the saints. The atmosphere is fresher and more benign. So excuse me, Durtal, I leave it to my wife to continue this Marivaux conversation about Satanism with you. He said it in the simplest, most debonair fashion to be imagined, but with just the slightest trace of irony. Which Durtal perceived. It must be quite late, he thought, when the door closed after Chantelouve. He consulted his watch. Nearly eleven. He rose to take leave. When shall I see you? he murmured, very low. Your apartment tomorrow night at nine. He looked at her with beseeching eyes. She understood, but wished to tease him she kissed him maternally on the forehead then consulted his eyes again the expression of supplication must have remained unchanged for she responded to their imploration by a long kiss which closed them then came down to his lips drinking their dolorous emotion then she rang and told her maid to light durtal through the hall he descended satisfied that she had engaged herself to yield tomorrow night End of chapter 12